Good morning, everyone. I'm Pastor Rich. We're glad to have you on our online stream this morning. I am going to turn it over to Eugene uh, Watt, who is going to be bringing the message this morning. We're excited to have him share, so Eugene will be coming here. Yeah. Thank you, Pastor Rich. Thank you for the worship team. Uh, it was a wonderful time of worship. Uh, good morning, Five Stone. Uh, we have a wonderful setup here. I just want to acknowledge that there's a lot of work behind the scene uh, for our tech team uh, to enable us to be able to share with you virtually. Uh, the equipment, the technology is a wonderful way to, to manage uh, our church uh, during this COVID time. So we will continue today uh, on the sermon series on the book of First Samuel. Uh, earlier, uh, we learned that in the book of Samuel that King Saul has become very jealous of David uh, to a point that he tried to kill him. And so David ran for his life and Saul and his men went after and hunt for him. There's a lot of drama in, in the book of Samuel. There are places and names that I can't really pronounce very well, <laughs> so forgive me. <laughs> But God put these stories in the scripture for a purpose. He's speaking to us through the life of these people in the book. And ultimately, these stories all lead us back to Jesus. So I want to remind us that these stories, they're not fables, they're not legends. They are actually real events that happen in real people at real places, places that we can see if we go to Israel today. Before we start, let's have a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this day that we can worship you, Lord. We know this time that we are not able to gather physically here, but we know your spirit can connect us together, Lord. And may your word just open our hearts that we can see you and be connected with you, and that we can receive the message, receive your word each day, even in our own devotional time that you speak to us, Lord. Strengthen our hearts as we all go to, through this covert period together, that we will be refreshed and become stronger in you, Lord. Thank you for your word. Be with us. May your spirit be with us and open our hearts in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So reading the scripture can be challenging because looking at the pe people, just reading the book of Samuel and looking at the life of David and the people involved in, this, in the stories here, it's hard to understand why they say what they say, why they act the way they do. One of my guilty pleasure with Ruth is we like to watch the TV show. Uh, it's called Kim's Convenient. It's a... Uh, sitcom uh, about a Canadian-Korean family that runs a mom-and-pop convenience store in uh, Toronto. And Mr. Kim would always like to pull these little schemes and tricks on his family or, or his friends, and he would call them sneak attack. It's like, I gotcha. And we, as Asian, we're pretty good at sneak attacks. We like the element of surprise. Looking at history, Pearl Harbor is one of the, the famous sneak attack. 
in that case, there was a big element of surprise. And why was the American caught off guard? Well, according to a writer, his name is Richard Posner. He's a law professor, and he's also a U.S. appeal court judge. He wrote that the U.S. leaders assumed Japan would do what they would do, what the Americans would do, that is, to act logically. But as proven and also determined by all the analysis, in any protracted conflict, Japan had no chance of winning against the military and economic might of the United States. But, and quote, this is what Posner said, we fail to understand a culture alien to our own, and especially to understand how, even with the knowledge that they may be defeated, Japan would think is more honorable to fight than to abandon the announced policy to dominate Asia. So in other words, Japan would rather start a fight and know that they would probably lose than to go back on their word. But the American could not understand that because it seems illogical. It doesn't seem to make sense. As Christians, do we use our own reasoning, our own logic, to make choices for ourselves? Are we able to put aside some of our learned experience or our own bias to really seek out what God's will is for us? Even and especially when it doesn't seem to make sense. Now, Pastor John did a great job last week unpacking the events in back in 1 Samuel chapter 21 and 22. David was hungry. He was on a run. He went to a place called Nob. That's where the high priest Ahimelech was. He deceived the priest to t tell him that he was on a mission from Saul, and he wanted food, and the high priest gave him the sacred bread. And also the high priest gave him the sword of Goliath, who happened to be stored there. And so gave it to David for protection. But when later, when King Saul found out what happened, he accused the priest Ahimelech of conspiring against David, uh, conspired with David against him, like doing a sneak attack on him. So in a fit of rage, Saul ordered the killing, using that character John mentioned called Doeg, to kill the priest Ahimelech and 84 other priests for aiding David. He also killed all the people in the town on Nob. But one priest got away, only one. His name is Abrapha. He's the son of Ahimelech. And he got away, and then he joined up with David and his man on the run. And that is in chapter 22, verse 20. Now David's heart must have grieved when he heard what happened to the priest, what happened to the town on Nob. And he wrote about it in Psalm 52 his pain and his anger toward Doeg. But David did not blame Saul, the crazy guy. He owns it himself. He said, I am responsible for the death of your father's whole family in 
1 Samuel 22, 22. So we pick up the story here in chapter 23. David and a small band of men, really a motley crude of misfits, they are on the run together, running from Saul. But running from Saul is not the only thing on their mind. There is also the constant threat of the Philistine. So when it says in 1 Samuel 22, or 23, verse 1 to 2, it says, When David was told, look, the Philistines are fighting against Kali and eluding the fashion for, this is during harvest time, he inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go and attack these Philistines? The Lord answered him, Go, attack the Philistine and save Kali. David's men were fearful because the Philistines had more, peop more people in the army, and they had much more modern equipment and weapons. So David seek the Lord again, and the Lord told him, go and, uh, and defend and fight for Kali. So David did. He obeyed, and he defeated the Philistines, a big victory. And in verse 6, it says that, Now Abu Afa, the son of Ahimelech, had bought the ephod, down with him when he fed to David at Kali. What did David do before he went down to Kali? He inquired of the Lord, Is this your will, Lord, for us to go into battle? And how did David inquire of the Lord? In God's providence, he provided the only surviving priest Abiafa to come to David. Everyone else was gone. Why is this important is that Abiafa, in the Mosaic law in the Old Testament, you inquire God through the high priest. The high priest would wear his ephod. He has a breast piece which has 12 stones representing the tribes of Israel. And it also has these two stones called Urim and Firmum. And they are like dice-like stones. And they are used to basically seek a firm affirmation or negative from the Lord. It's kind of like lots. And that's covered in Exodus chapter 28:30. And in Proverbs 16:33, it says that the lot is cast into the laps but every decision is from the Lord. The Lord speaks through the high priest. So Abraham, decked out in his priestly garment, was able to execute the office of the high priest for David. He was David's secret weapon to seek God's will, and David used him. Saul never had much respect for the high priest or the office of the high priest, or else he wouldn't have killed him nor he has much respect for the office of Samuel, the prophet. Remember back in chapter 13 in Gilgal, Saul decided he didn't want to wait for Samuel to, to offer the sacrifice and inquire of the Lord. He did it himself. He just kind of like the Nike guy, just do it. <laughs> but that's not what God wants. He wants us to be ob obedient, to follow him, to seek him, and seek his will, even when it doesn't seem to make sense. So as the news of David's victory spread, 
his location was known by Saul. So Saul, as expected, packed up his army and set out to go after David and Kali. And again, David seeked the Lord. He said, O Lord, God of Israel, your servant has heard definitely that Saul plans to come to Kali and destroy the town on account of me. Will the citizens of Kali surrender me to him? And the Lord said, they will. 1 Samuel 23, 10-12. Can you s- feel how David felt? He just rescued this, these people. And now these people are ready to turn him over when Saul comes. But he still has a heart for these people. And he seeks the direction from the Lord. Where do you want me to be? Should I go or should I stay? And God sent him into the desert. Now the Judean desert is a very dry and rugged terrain. It has many canyons and caves. The temperature there, for most of the years, can get really hot by noon, about 100 degrees or 36 or 38 degrees Celsius. The desert sun is very intense, and just breathing there, it's almost like you're putting a blow dryer in front of your face. Mark Twain has said that when he visited the Judean desert, he said that it reminds him of death and funeral. David wrote many psalms while he was in the desert, just expressing his heart. Psalm 18, 34, 52, 54, 56, 57, 63, 124, 138, 142, and there's probably more that I don't know of. And here's an example in Psalm 57, verse 1 to 2. He said, Have mercy on me, O Lord. Have mercy on me. For my soul takes, for in you my soul takes refuge. I will take refuge in the shadow of your wings until disaster has passed. I cry out to the God most high, to God who fulfills his purpose in me. He's exhausted. He's in the desert heat. He's on the run, weary and fearful. But just at that time, his close friend, Jonathan, came to him. And his son, Jonathan, went to David in Horash and helped him find strength in the Lord. Do not be afraid, he said. My father Saul will not lay a hand on you you will be king over Israel, and I will be second to you. Even my father Saul knows this. First Samuel 23, 16-17. How do we feel when we are tired and weary and we receive this encouragement from a trusted friend? Are we prepared to receive and let your, this godly friend speak life into us? We can value the honesty, the wisdom, because our trusted friends know us well. They can cut through the chase and just speak directly into us. And this is Jonathan who encouraged David at his time when he was most needed that word of encouragement. In Proverbs 27.9, it says, A sweet friendship refreshes the soul. We all need a close godly friend to support and encourage us when we are in the time 
of struggles, a time of weariness. So okay, we move on to chapter 24, and this is the famous encounter of David and Saul in the cave. So exhausted in the desert, David led his men along the west side of the Dead Sea. The Dead Sea is the lowest point on planet Earth. The water there is 10 times more saltier than the ocean water. You can't drink it. But David led them, his men, into a place called En Gedi. Now, En Gedi is a complete contrast to the surrounding desert. It is an oasis, supporting very lush green vegetation. There's spring of water that comes out from the rocks on the upper canyons, and it flows down through the cliffs and creates these spectacular, beautiful waterfalls into these pools. Solomon wrote about it in Songs of Psalm in 114. My lover to me is to me a cluster of Hannah blossom from the vineyards of Angedi. For David, after coming out of the desert and entering to Angedi, it must be like checking into the Fairmont Hotel. You got this wonderful flowing fresh water, cool flowing water, and then there's this pool you can soak into among this beautiful green scenery. And there's also wild games uh, for barbecue. And then there's these caves there that are perfect for shelter and hiding. So God provided and Getty as a reprieve for David and his men so that they can restore themselves, restore their body and soul. When Saul found out that David was in En Gedi, as predicted, he called out his 3,000 troops and seek out David there. At that time, David had only about 600 men. In 1 Samuel 24, verse 3 and 4, he came to a sheep pen along the way. A cave was there. And Saul went in to relieve himself. David and his men were far back in the cave. The man said, today the Lord is saying, I give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. Then David crept up unnoticed and cut off the corner of Saul's robe. Well, Saul needs to relieve himself. In the King James Version, it said that Saul has to cover his feet. I'll leave it up to your imagination what that may look like. <laughs> but this is the perfect opportunity for David to do a sneak attack. Uh, Saul was alone. God sent him into the cave that David happens to be in. And Saul would be totally defenseless if he was doing a number two. David's men urge him on, he said. And there's good reason to take Saul out at this time. If the role were reversed, Saul would have killed David in a heartbeat. And of course, Saul has already gone insane. He's been killing so many people, wiping out towns. He's like that crazy Colonel Kurtz in Apocalypse Now. Taking Saul out in the cave would have alleviated further bloodshed for David's men or Saul's army. Because once Saul is out, it's a one quick step for David to take out the throne. He will end all his life on the run as a nomad. So there's good logical reason 
But this is a test for David's faith in God. God never said, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. This is his men saying that. His men are saying it based on their own reason, their own logic. David knows that this is not God's will. What he did was he sneaked up. He did sneak up and cut a piece of the rope off Saul's uh, garment. Just to show that Saul was fully exposed. And David know that at this time it's not God's will to lift a hand against Saul, no matter how bad he is. He's anointed by God as the king, and he wants to let God deal with Saul in his time. But afterward, David was conscience-stricken for having cut off a corner of his rope. He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord anointed, or lift my hand against him, for he is anointed of the Lord. With these words, David rebuked his men and did not allow them to attack Saul. And Saul left the cave and went away. In verse 5 to 6. So Saul didn't know what happened in the cave. He left the cave, relief. But this is the part I don't really understand because why was David's conscience stricken? He didn't harm Saul. All he did was took a piece of helm off the rope. Why all this remorse? But in Hebrews culture, the helm represents God's authority on that particular person. It's in Numbers 15:39. And we also remember the story of the woman who was bleeding, who wanted to touch the helm of Jesus in the crowd because you want to seek the authority of Jesus for the healing. Cutting the hem, essentially in this case, is that David is saying, I'm taking the authority of you, Saul, from the house of Saul into me, the house of David. David quickly realized that is not God's will for him to do. So when Saul left the cave, David followed behind at a safe distance, and he called out to Saul, he bowed down in front of Saul and this showed him that the, the cut-off helm. And then there was a lengthy dialogue in verse 8 to 12, which we don't have time to read through, but essentially there's three points there. David wanted to tell Saul that God has handed him over to his, David's hand, that God is no longer watching over Saul. David also reasoned and pleaded with Saul that he mean him no harm. He's innocent. And lastly, David called upon the God to be the judge, to avenge for, for David for all the things that Saul had done to him. David would not do it himself. He would leave it to God. When Saul realized what happened in the cave and that David had just spared his life, he was remorseful and wept. He acknowledged that David will be the future king, and he left and went home. Unfortunately, when we find out later on, Saul has that evil spirit, and he came back later on and be vengeful against David again. So a couple things that we can take from this passage here, these two chapters in 1 Samuel. First is that 
God provides, he provided for David. As David wrote, O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you, my soul thirsts for you. My body longs for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Why did David write in the famous Psalm 23, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies and you anointed my head with oil, my cup overflows. David can look back and see that God has prepared David throughout his life. As a young shepherd boy, he roamed those desert terrain and the Judean hills. He knows how to survive on the desert because of his time as a shepherd boy. And God brought these men, these generally misfits, people who owe monies and so forth, and came to David and band with David. And they eventually became his loyal warriors. God provided Jonathan, his trusted friend, someone who is obedient to God, a selfless friend who encouraged him when he most needed. God provided that one surviving priest for David so that he can inquire God. Then God handed him military victories against mightier foes. And he provided him and Gedi as a place of reprieve, as a place of rest and shelter, a place that he can receive spiritual refreshing and encouragement. So David's cup was indeed overflowing. The living water is, is an important part of Hebrew's worship. They created these pools and baths in front of the temple, in front of the synagogue, so that the people can cleanse the heart before they enter into worship. Jesus spoke to the Samaritan woman about the living water, which is even better than the water of the springs and the rivers. Jesus said, the water I give you will become in you a spring of water welling up. In John 4, verse 13 to 14. Our Father wants to pour this living water upon us so that our cups will be overflowed, that we will be refreshed in our own times of desert. We seek him through our worship in our prayers, and be with him in a long time, maybe taking a walk out in the outdoors just to seek him and be refreshed with his living water. Second is that God prepare a place for us. He promised David greatness and kingship, but as we see it during this time, David was just uh, like a dog on a run, just surviving. But God kept an eye on David throughout this time. Even when he's in his valleys or in the mountaintops, and David knows that God is watching him, and he seeks God's heart. It says in Psalm 56, verse 9 to 10, You have kept count on my wanderings. Store my tears in your wa water skin. Aren't they already recorded in your book? Then my enemy will turn back on the day when I call. This I know, that God is for me. As Christians, we often may find ourselves in the wilderness, 
our surrounding culture, which may include people close or dear to us, may not understand or embrace the value that we can embrace. And like the Israeli Israelite living in the land of Canaan with the pagan culture surrounding them, it's very tiring to live a life of service to God, especially when the world around us is so different. There's discouragement, criticism, and probably sneak attacks on our value as well. But God knows our journeys. He keeps counts of our wandering. He knows our tears. He wants us to be faithful. He challenges us to be faithful even when things doesn't seem to make sense. And he wants us to seek him for a purpose. Last year, around this time, Ruth and I were uh, at the Mission Fest. We were there to, to listen to Kevin and Julia, who was giving a talk at Mission Fest. And uh, there was also these other workshops and um, talks by. And uh, Ruth and I, we, we spread out, and she took some, in some, some topics, and I, I went into another room for another topic. And I was intrigued by this sharing of a missionary lady. Um, she's from here in Canada. And she was sharing about her experience serving with the church in Gaza uh, and as a pastor from the Gaza Baptist Church. Now, Gaza is a very densely populated area. It's very small. It's only 360 square kilometers. Uh, it's about 40 kilometers long, 6 kilometers wide, 6 to 12 kilometers wide. So it's a narrow strip. That's why they call it Gaza Strip has a population, a Palestinian population, about two million people. So it's like basically having all the people from Metro Vancouver pluck them all into the city of Surrey, and that's roughly the size. But unlike the West Bank that you have tour buses going in and out, going to Bethlehem and that, you can't get into Gaza. The Israeli government does not want outsiders to go in and out of the Gaza Strip. The area is very volatile. Unemployment is high. It's about 46% unemployment. There's only three churches serving that area. There's about 2,500 Christians in, in the Gaza Strip. So that there's the church, there's an Orthodox church, there's a Catholic church, and there's one Gaza Baptist church, the only evangelical church there. Traditionally, the Christian minority, which is less than 0.1% there, enjoy really good relations with the Muslim majority. And the Gaza Baptist church was formed in the 50s, 1950s. It had a congregation of about 250 people. It was, it was passed by a a man named, uh, he wasn't the first pastor, but he was the pastor in the talk. His name was Hannah Massad. He's a Gaza-born Palestinian, trained in the Bethlehem Bible College in the Bethlehem. And he also received a PhD from Fuller Seminary in the United States, where he also served a couple years as pastor in, the, in California. But he returned back to Gaza, to the Gaza Baptist Church in 1999, he also got married and started a family there. Everything went south in 2007 when law and order fell apart. There was conflict between Fatah and the Hamas fighting for power, 
in the Gaza. There's conflicts between Hamas firing rocket into Israel and then Israel retaliating with airstrikes. And the church was often caught in the crossfires. Violence struck, struck the church. One member was injured, another was killed in the crossfire. A young manager of the church bookstore, his name is Remy Ayat. He has a young family, a passion for Jesus. He was kidnapped, beaten, and killed. That was the time when the authority told Pastor Massad it's no longer safe for him to be in the Gaza. So he has to leave along with a couple other church leaders. So the family, Pastor Massad moved to Jordan and the, uh, some of the other family moved to the West Bank. So the, but the Gaza Baptist Church continued to march on even when the leadership is in exile. But Pastor Hannah continued to make regular trip back from Jordan to Gaza to shepherd his flock. I think today Pastor Hannah and his wife is in, in the United States. His daughter is still in Jordan, but he still continued to go back to the Gaza Strip because he has a heart for the people. What struck me most was what Pastor Hannah says uh, when people ask him, why now you're out of Gaza, why do you keep going back there? It's such a dangerous place. And his response was what? Really taking me back. He said, the best place in the world is the worst place if it is not in God's will. The worst place in the world is the best place in the world if that is in God's will. In Psalm 138, verse 7 to 8, the Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. Your love, O Lord, endures forever. Do not abandon the work of your hands. Do we know what's God's will for us? In Romans 8, 28, it says, In all things God works for the goods of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. God provided Abiapha, the priest, to intercede for David. So David can find out what's God's will for him. God provided Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who died on the cross and risen in three days. He conquered death for us. When Jesus cried out on the cross, it is done. It is done indeed. The price was paid. The price of sin was paid. God immediately torn the veil in the temple, separating us into the holies of holy. He torn that, that curtain is 60 feet tall, 6 inch thick, and it's torn from top to bottom. It's like God's hand from heaven downward. We are open to access God. We no longer need to go through a high priest as David needed to, to inquire of God's will. If we confess our sins and receive Jesus as our Lord and Savior, we are able to have access to the Father who loves us through the blood of Jesus, the Lamb of God. So as we pray each day, let's not just ask for favor from God, 
but find out what is his will for us. Through the blood of Jesus, the door is open. We want God to lead us so that we are involved in our plan for him. That we can be aligned with his will for each one of us. As it says, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So let us offer our our prayer as an incense to God, as a pleasing aroma to him. I'll close with a prayer. I also add in some some lyrics from a famous older worship song. Father, we thank you for the time we have this morning to dive into your word. We thank you for the story of Samuel, the story of David and his experience of trusting you and seeking you, Lord. Father, teach us how we can have that hunger for you, the hunger for your will, to be done in our lives, that we submit ourselves, we move our own bias, things that keep us from hearing from you, clear the noise from our lives, especially this time in COVID, Lord. We feel isolation, perhaps. Bring us close to you, Lord. Connect us to you. Father, take us past the outer courts, into the holy place, past the blazing altar. Lord, we want to see your face. Pass us through the crowds of people and the priest who sings your praise. We hunger and thirst for your righteousness, but it's only found in one place. Take us into the holies of holies. Take us in through the blood of the Lamb. Take us in to the holies of holies. Take the coal. Touch our lips. Here we are. Thank you, Lord. Be with us. Strengthen us. Show us your will for us, Lord. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. I'll turn our time back to Pastor Rich as he concludes the service. Thank you, Eugene. That was a wonderful message once again. One of the things I appreciate so much about what Pastor John and Eugene did in the last two weeks is give us the, the parallel accounts between what historically happened in David's life and then bringing in David's journals so that you can see the emotions, the things that he went through as he was you know, walking through these extremely stressful and intense times. And it adds such richness to our understanding and the story uh, to see these things to be able to peer into David's heart as he was walking um, through these times of being chased and being, you know, um, having his life under under threat. I really feel like uh, Eugene really hit the bullseye this morning. I loved his ending prayer, the idea of coming into the Holy of Holies. And finding God's will is the sweet spot for every single Christian's life. I heard a definition one time of submission. I thought it was so good. It's our will giving way to his will. Submission is our will giving way to his will. Now, we know the most famous description of David is that he was a man after God's heart. That's what it says in 1 Samuel 13 when Samuel went to anoint him, that God chose him because he was a man after God's heart. 
But in Acts chapter 13, verse 22, it gives us an additional little commentary that is so powerful, which speaks to what Eugene was speaking. And it says that, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart who will do all my will. So that defines for us what it means to have a heart after God is that we want to do God's will. Not our will, but thy will be done. And when we're in the center of his will, that's where protection is, that's where provision is, that's where contentment is, that's where joy is, despite the external circumstances that can make it so hard for us. There's nothing better than having God's presence and assurance and peace on the inside, no matter what's going on on the outside. So um, thank you, Eugene, for your wonderful message. And for us, as we're walking with the Lord, I think this is such a great reminder that in the end, our life is unpacked and our destiny flourishes when we pursue hard after God's will, um, as we saw David do here in these chapters. So we want to um, thank you again for joining us. Next Sunday, we'll be back online. You know the channel. And uh, so we'll see you next Sunday. Blessings.